I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today, we're going to talk about COVID and the lab leak. And I want to frame the show at the top as being not just about that, but also several different things at once. And the, the first is the simple facts about what we know about the potential of the pandemic getting started in a lab in Wuhan. And the second is about the nature of our public discourse and what information is allowed to be discussed freely and what isn't. And for a long time, any speculation about a potential lab leak was literally banned from major social media platforms. You'd have your posts taken down. You might even have your entire account deleted just for discussing it. And then it became a right-wing thing. If you were open to thinking about it, you were kind of categorized as a right-winger and were accused of xenophobia and sparking hate crimes against Asian Americans. Now that we know more about the potential lab leak, the social media restrictions have been lifted, but the cultural restrictions, the kind of soft censorship that, that's actually way more effective than the hard censorship, that's still around. And so I suspect for a lot of our listeners, what they'll hear today is going to seem out of left field. But all three of these journalists that I'm going to be joined with in a moment are quite serious and diligent. And we'll link in the show notes to the documents to back all of this up. And where we're merely speculating, we'll be clear that that's what we're doing. Now, and the third thing, and this is actually, I think, the most important that I want to talk about, is the risks and the benefits of this gain-of-function research. And, and we, we have to ask the question of whether it's something that we, as a global public, should be allowing at all, and if so, under what restrictions. Now, the debate over gain-of-function is not new at all. Back in 2012, Dr. Anthony Fauci wrote an article in the American Society for Microbiology in which he argued in support of gain-of-function research. And now here's how he argued it. He wrote, quote, in an unlikely but conceivable turn of events, what if that scientist becomes infected with the virus, which leads to an outbreak and ultimately triggers a pandemic? Many ask reasonable questions. Given the possibility of such a scenario, however remote, should the initial experiments have been performed and or published in the first place? And what were the processes involved in this decision? Scientists working in this field might say, as indeed I have said, that the benefits of such experiments and the resulting knowledge outweigh the risks. It is more likely that a pandemic would occur in nature, and the need to stay ahead of such a threat is a primary reason for performing an experiment that might appear to be risky. Within the research community, many have expressed concern that important research progress could come to a halt just because of the fear that someone somewhere might attempt to replicate these experiments sloppily. This is a valid concern, he wrote. So yet in 2014, the U.S. paused gain-of-function research. And so I'm excited to have on the show today so three of the journalists who've done as much as any others to break this story open. First is Catherine Eben. She's a writer at Vanity Fair, contributing writer at Vanity Fair, and the author of the recent article, This Shouldn't Happen, Inside the Virus-Hunting Nonprofit at the Center of the Lab Leak Controversy. She's also the author of the 2019 book, Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom. Catherine, welcome to Deconstructed. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And Sharon Lerner is a health, science, and the environment reporter for The Intercept and a winner of a ton of awards, basically all of them. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you for joining. 
Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. And Mara Fistendahl is also a reporter for The Intercept with a heavy focus on China. She was previously China bureau chief for Science Magazine and is the author of two books, The Scientist and the Spy and Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Mara, welcome. Good to be here. And Mara, I wanted to mention that that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize because one of the worst stings of being a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, which we were back when I was at the Huffington Post, is that they announce it like seconds after they have announced who the winner is. So you don't even get, uh, I don't know if this is how it was for you, but you don't even get that like week of anticipation where people are like, hey, I hope I hope you win. You only, you're, <laughs> you're only told publicly uh, that you're a finalist uh, when you're a loser. It's the, it's the most yeah, brutal. I only found out when I, I only found out when I woke up in China and went on Twitter and as I was drinking my yeah, coffee. Yeah, and you, you, so. <laughs> I didn't even right, you email. find out that you're a finalist yeah. at the exact same time that you find out that you lost. It's, yeah. it's so cruel. Like just, and there's only three finalists. And w- once you're a finalist, you know, it, it's a crapshoot at that point. So anyway, congratulations on getting to there. <laughs> uh, and you probably didn't get enough congratulations because nobody knew because you don't want to like tell people, hey, I lost today. <laughs> Thanks. So anyway, uh, Catherine, in that same year, 2014, when there was a pause, a moratorium put on gain-of-function research, the NIH gives what may end up being a consequential grant to an organization called EcoHealth Alliance. So can you tell us a little bit about what EcoHealth is? So EcoHealth Alliance is a, a scientific nonprofit in Manhattan which doesn't have a laboratory. So there's no actual scientists there doing experiments. What they do is collaborate with other scientists and organizations around the world with a heavy focus on virus hunting, essentially trying to find pathogens in nature at high risk of a spillover to the human population from animals And then, as we now know from uh, grants, study those viruses, sometimes doing gain-of-function research, which is to try to increase the transmissibility or severity of infection of those pathogens to see if there are sort of avenues for spillover to the human population. And so speaking of that grant... Last year, The Intercept, thanks to a lawsuit that we filed, we obtained a ream of documents related to that grant. Uh, Sharon or Mara, who, who wants to take this one first? Talk about what, what, what did you find in, your, in the FOIA lawsuit that emerged from that grant? Sure, I can talk about that. Um, so we put in a FOIA in September of 2020. And yeah, as you mentioned, there was a lawsuit. We ended up getting tons of documents. And I guess the first dump we got showed us that in this grant, which was called Understanding the Risk of Bat Coronavirus Emergence, which was uh, awarded originally in 2014, that scientists from, and it was a collaboration between the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China and EcoHealth, that they, among other things, conducted an experiment in which they created a hybrid virus from a bat coronavirus. And this is one of the viruses that Catherine is mentioning that they hunted down and found, and it was called referred to as WIB1. Basically, they combined other uh, genetic material with WIB1 
and injected this new chimeric virus or hybrid virus into genetically altered mice and found that when this virus went into these genetically altered mice, it reproduced more quickly and was more pathogenic than the original, than WIV-1. So this is what many people in the field refer to as gain-of-function research. We, we actually asked when we first wrote about this in September of 2021, we asked 11 scientists who work, who are either virologists or virology adjacent experts on this. And they said, seven of the 11 said, this is fits the NIH's own definition of gain of function research. And nine said that it presented serious concerns about the the safety and oversight of federally funded research. So that was like our, our first big story coming out of these documents. We have had um, several stories since, one of which showed that also there was an experiment on the MERS, MERS virus, which is a very deadly virus. And what they did was they created infectious clones of MERS and swapped out the virus's receptor binding domain, which is a part of the spike protein, uh, which enables it to enter human, uh, you know, infect humans. So this was also, you know, and for all these pieces, we're, we're not, you know, we're not virologists, we don't have PhDs in the field, but we're always talking to people who do. And and for that story, we, we also got a bunch of, um, very, uh, we heard a lot of concern from people in the field that this was not a safe thing to do. So I could go on, we, we did a, a lot of reporting on this. The next major thing I, I think we got from these documents was an explanation, a bit of an explanation of how and why the NIH didn't stop this, right? Because as you mentioned, there's the 20 14 pause on gain of function research on pandemic pathogens or potential pandemic pathogens. In 2017, they kind of resumed that research, but with this set of guidelines called P3CO, which were supposed to also really closely scrutinize uh, and protect us, right, from any dangers that might emerge from this research. Well, what we found along we this was a story that was based on some documents we obtained and also others that were obtained by a group called the white coat waste project but basically um what we found was that the way that dodge of those protections happened was that peter dazak who is the head of eco health alliance actually crafted language that basically helped the agency bypass its own rules right and right. so what it said was for these experiments if we have if we have a certain amount of, of viral growth right in these new chimeric viruses or if we see that they're more pathogenic then we'll immediately stop and we will inform nih right, right. and did they do that and no as far as we can tell they did not and so what we have there are two kind of really interesting things there one is what you just said, they violated their own rule, but two, they crafted it and basically handed it over to NIH, which w with very little alteration kind of 
allowed it to be inserted in the final agreement. And so we have spoken to a lot of biosafety folks who have expressed real concern about that, that like, that's not real oversight, right? That, you know, and so I remain with the question about this, we now kind of know how it happened, because we have emails showing, you know, the crafting of this language, the accepting of this language, the insertion of this language. But, you know, overarchingly, when you take a couple of steps back, what you see is that we have um, the 2014 effort to, you know, protect, uh, guard against the dangers of gain of function, the 2017 effort. Right now, we actually have a new effort that's that's being started to, to oversee some of this stuff. And the big question I'm left with is, even if you have these incredibly well thought out plans for, you know, we're going to scrutinize this, this, and this, if what appears to have happened if 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 you can bypass that just by saying well actually it doesn't apply then it doesn't matter so anyway those are some of the big findings we've gotten from the grants right and the the work is being done in this case in this in this lab in china and nih is relying on kind of the word of the grantee to tell them that it's going well and mara how does what you found in this foia compare to what ecohealth had said publicly about what they were doing well Peter Daszak had not, in his um, interviews with the press, revealed the exact nature of these experiments. Um, He had not talked about how risky they, in fact, were. And so that was something that the, you know, the grant documents, when we we published those, it came as a surprise um, to to many people, um, to scientists who had, in fact, defended Peter Daszak when you know he was under fire and they felt like he was being you know unfairly maligned um, had taken his side and then once these grant documents came out there were people who said well wait a minute we did not know that he was going that far toward um, the line with with gain of function research there were also defenders of his who who noted correctly that the viruses Uh, outlined in the grant documents are not closely related enough to SARS-CoV-2 to have caused the pandemic. And, you know, said in his defense, um, there's really nothing to see here because now we we have these documents and they do not show any link to the pandemic. Um, But on the other hand, there are, we still don't have the full picture. Um, they they clearly revealed um, a willingness to take risks, and there have been significant holes in what NIH released to us. We've had to keep pushing, and uh, Catherine has has also pushed and um, obtained more information on this to get the full picture of what's happened. And we still don't we still don't completely know. Um, what we do know is that you know very. Um, risky research was carried out in Wuhan um, with NIH funding that the oversight of that research had significant gaps and that there are holes in in the documents that NIH released to us. So this isn't the only grant of of interest. If it were, maybe we could stop here, but there's also uh, the DARPA grant application that's crucial to this story. And Catherine, you shed some new light on that, added new details in your Vanity Fair story. Why did EcoHealth apply for this a DARPA grant, and how's, how does this fit in? Yeah, so around 2016, 2017, EcoHealth Alliance was facing a massive financial crisis. 
Now, this was a, you know, originally an organization called Wildlife Trust that did really worthy work trying to help save manatees and pygmy elephants. But what they discovered as they went along is that that's not really where the money was. My article sheds new light on sort of how they chased grant money. Um, So they held a series of soirees, cocktail parties at the Cosmos Club in Washington, D.C., where they invited uh, an array of bureaucrats from the sort of, you know, grant, grant machinery of the federal government. And they called these cultivation events where they were just, you know, uh, getting to know people in the federal bureaucracy who could help steer or direct grants. And, you know, as they faced a financial crisis and a shortfall, they looked around and saw that the Defense Department could be a very lucrative source of grants, especially because the Defense Department had a lot of new money for, you know, infectious disease study and detection and these sort of remote forays into, uh, you know, caves many thousands of miles away to study infectious uh, diseases and sample bats. So in late 2017, early 2018, EcoHealth Alliance applied for a grant from a sub-agency in DOD called DARPA, and they proposed to go to China's bat caves, sample bats for coronaviruses, take those back to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, test those, and then go and try to reduce viral shedding in bat caves with aerosol releases and other sort of high-tech stuff. But what was really notable about this grant proposal was that they proposed to insert cleavage sites similar to the mystifying furin cleavage site in the SARS-CoV-2 genetic sequence and to insert those into their uh, coronavirus sequences to see if it would make them more infectious. And to many people, when that was uh, exposed, that DARPA grant, and it only got exposed, I believe, last year, that was really looked like a kind of smoking gun, which was that the research that was being proposed in the DARPA grant looked like a kind of directional arrow to a SARS-CoV-2 like virus. So that was quite significant, but I think what my article added to the picture was that, um, you know, they were really just determined to follow the money and get this grant no matter the cost. And, you know, one, the internal documents that I obtained just showed the absolute chaos that existed inside of EcoHealth Alliance where they're like, you know, this is a disaster. We're just like throwing this grant uh, application at DARPA and it's so disorganized and nothing's going right. And we have to change our mentality in order to be able to make money, which is what uh, Peter Daszak told uh, a staff meeting. So, you know, the the image that 
he has presented publicly is of this well-oiled machine with careful oversight and, you know, excellent regulation and transparency. But the picture inside of that organization, which, you know, I obtained over 100,000 internal documents, just tells a very different story. And what, what's so critical about this grant application is also the scientists that were behind it. And so the UNC researcher, Ralph Barrick, who's considered one of the best best scientists who works in this field in the world, had done research, correct me if I'm wrong, I think in 2015, that he himself, that he published gain-of-function research, and then he himself said, you know what, this was extraordinarily risky. It was performed in a safe location. We, we followed all of the safety protocols. It doesn't appear that we leaked, but it's scary, and we ought to consider maybe not doing this stuff in the future. Barrick kind of teamed up with them uh, to produce this grant application. And I want to quote from your Vanity Fair article, you write, the DARPA proposal was, quote, basically a roadmap to SARS-CoV-2 like virus, says virologist Simon Wayne Hobson, who is among the scientists calling for a fuller investigation of uh, COVID-19's origins. If the research had the blessing of a top coronavirus scientist like Barrick, then it is possible the Wuhan Institute would have wanted to copy what it viewed as cutting edge science. He said, quote, that doesn't mean they did it, but it means it's legitimate to ask the question. And so here we're at a place where you have this sort of smoking gun, but you have EcoHealth Alliance saying, well, we actually never pulled the trigger. We may have had the gun, but we didn't, we didn't pull the trigger. But what you also added in your story is that you say that he wouldn't actually know whether or not this research was done in the lab. He's saying with certainty, we didn't conduct any of this research ahead of time. Before we get to that, Sharon, I want to ask you real quickly, a scientist you interviewed said that it's rather common to do some some prep work ahead of a grant application, right? Yes. We also did some reporting on the DARPA grant when it was first leaked by Drastic and the online investigation group. And yeah, pretty much everyone we spoke to said that when you write a proposal like this, you've done some investigation into what you're seeking seeking money for. So yes, it's entirely possible that some of that has happened. They said, what, I should say that we interviewed Peter Daszak and asked him this very thing. And he said, nope, you know, we didn't do it. It wasn't funded. We didn't do the work. And he was very clear in his response. I should also say, though, that we have had some back and forths with EcoHealth Alliance about, you know, the facts that <laughs> that are not a, a direct line. So initially, you know, when we were reporting on, on the MERS work, we were told by their spokesperson that they never conducted that work. Mm -hmm. And then later we got grant materials that said very clearly that the work had been conducted. And when we reached back out that time, they didn't respond. And then later, they seemed to admit that it had happened to the NIH. So we've already had interactions with them right. in which they appeared to give a non-truthful answer. Let me just, if I could just add one thing, Ryan, which is I think it's just important to note that it seems clear from the documents that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is benefiting from their global collaboration and the uh, cutting edge research of Ralph Barrick. And, you know, what was really clear is you can look at it and you can say, okay, they didn't do that research. 
You know, nothing that was funded by the NIH could have turned into SARS-CoV-2. And let's let's acknowledge, sure. But the point is, is that we don't know what happened inside of the Wuhan Institute of Virology with those techniques that they got from taxpayer-funded research. Right, and you were told right? that we, directly we don't from... Know. You were told that directly from EcoHealth employees who would say it was a black box in there. Yes, yes. And that they absolutely struggled to figure out what was going on at the WIV and that there is no way, despite whatever Dashik wants to say, that he can know fully what went on in that laboratory. And he hasn't had all the... You know, he's he's told NIH again and again that he can't get the, the lab notebooks that they kept, that there are a lot of records that he says are, are very difficult um, for him to get. And yet, you know, under the terms of the grant, he was supposed to, to oversee the work there and keep good records of what was going on. And, and another issue that we've identified in our reporting is that, um, you know, when NIH initially released these documents to us, there were some strange anomalies on the progress reports for two year, the last two years of the grant. Uh, one of them had been filed two years late, and the other one was missing entirely. And the reason that, that matters is because those are the two years that immediately leading up to the start of the pandemic. So, you know, it's very important that we have an accurate picture of what research was happening there at that time. And after we published a story on this issue, NIH then released additional documents. So they released, without any explanation, an earlier version of one of these progress reports. And, you know, we've been going back and forth with DASIC and with NIH trying to figure out what is going on. I mean, Catherine has also done reporting on this issue, and it's still not completely clear. Um, DASIC has told us that, that EcoHealth went in and modified the year four progress report in September 2020. He said that that's because they found a, an innocuous error in the in the report in the course of um, editing another report. That ap- report was opened in September 2020, and it you know the date updated, but there were really no substantive changes made to it at the time. That so that's that's his version of events, but there are still a lot of questions surrounding that report and um, subsequent reports. And you know so it, it's it's clear that. We don't have the full picture yet. Right. And so, Mara, the lab leak theory in the very beginning in the U.S. was associated with, like I said earlier, with the right wing, with Trump. Uh, But actually, you were telling me that it originated on Chinese social media. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So in February 2020, I had just come out with a book on um, detailing how China and Chinese scientists in particular figured into national security narratives in the United States. Um, So, you know, a lot of it was about racism and the Trump administration. And this was an issue that I was very sensitive toward. And, you know, if you go back to that period, Tensions with China were rising. The the Trump administration had very openly um, staked out a, a, a you know an interest in escalating it, um, tensions with China, and at the same time it was an administration that that appeared very anti science at moments. When people in the Trump administration came out and suggested 
that the pandemic could have originated in a lab, there was immediately skepticism among many on the left and among many reporters. You know, people just outright dismissed it. You know, I know because I did that myself at the time. And, you know, I'm somebody who's visited many Chinese labs. You know, and it became clear to me after spending a month or two looking into this that there were very legitimate reasons to be concerned, that there was actually a kernel of truth, you know, amid all of Trump's, um, you know, this is a period where he was, he was using phrases like Kung Flu and, you know, just, mm -hmm. just crazy stuff coming out of his mouth. There was actually reason to take seriously the possibility of a lab leak. And, and so if you go back to the first mention of who originally identified the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, and talked about the possibility that it, this could have happened, it was Chinese citizens on social media. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so that brings us to this February of, of 2020, and as the coronavirus is spreading around the country, uh, scientists are starting to ask where it's coming from, including Dr. Anthony Fauci and those those close to him. And so there's a, a, a critical series of days from like, like February 1st to February 4th, a lot of emails going back and forth, a conference call. Uh, Sharon, you've done a lot, a lot of reporting on this. Can you hash out what, what was the original uh, understanding or the original assumption or, uh, from a number of these scientists that that's with Fauci? And how did we get to a place where it went from uh, an open question to no question at all? So I should say you've done a lot of reporting on this. Um, and actually more than I appreciate have. that. But, well, it's true. Um, and and so right, there's this this really important phone call that um, took place, I believe, on February first, right? And it's 11 scientists that got together to talk about the possibility that that COVID-19 may have originated from, you know, a lab leak and the, you know, Wuhan Institute of Virology, and that it might have been due to the manipulation of one of the viruses that, that they um, had there. Um, and so there are a number of of top scientists who were on this call, Robert Gary, Edward Holmes, Christian Anderson, Jeremy Farrar. And basically, they are talking about 
about this possibility and and recognizing that there are real reasons to be concerned that and then there are various ways that uh, lab work that they all knew was underway at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where of course is where the pandemic began, might have led to might might have led to the pandemic. So um, and they they run through a number of possibilities on on the call, and um, you can tell from the the emails that followed this call. One of the scientists, Mike uh, Farzan, who's from the Scripps Re- Research Institute, sent an email to Tony Fauci, uh, Francis Collins, head of NIH or then head of NIH, and Lawrence. T- Tayback, also of NIH, kind of summarizing the concerns of the scientists. And it's really compelling. And you can tell that they're all quite concerned. So according to a written summary of some of what the scientists were thinking, this is a really interesting thing that is attributed to Bob Gary, who's a virologist at the Tulane School of Medicine. Um, and and this is a, a quote from that summary. Quote, I lined NCOV, so uh, the new coronavirus, I lined NCOV with the 96% bat coronavirus sequenced at the WIV, except for the RBD, and that means receptor binding domain, the S proteins are essentially identical at the amino acid level. Well, all but the perfect insertion of 12 nucleotides that adds the furin site. S2 is over its whole length, essentially identical. I really can't think of a plausible natural scenario where you get from the bat virus or one very similar to it to NCOV, where you insert exactly four amino acids, 12 nucleotides that all have to be added at the same time to gain this function. I just can't figure out how this gets accomplished in nature. And there are a number of other scientists saying very similar things on that call, according to the summary, right? You have this conference call where you have all of these different scientists saying that, uh, you know, some of them are putting percentages 70-30 lab, you know, 60-40 lab. Uh, And then just a couple days later, you have kind of an organized paper with some of these same uh, scientists saying that actually the lab leak is just a a giant conspiracy. And and before you answer that, I want to say, so Maya Hibbert, a colleague of mine, uh, reached out to to Dr. Gary uh, fairly recently for a story that I wrote with her. and, and, And he wrote back to her, quote, neither doctors Fauci or Collins edited our proximal origins paper. And this is the paper I want to ask you about in any way. The major feedback we got from the February 1st teleconference was one, don't try to write a paper at all. It's unnecessary. Or two, if you do write it, don't mention a lab origin as that will just add fuel to the conspiracists. So that's Gary telling Maya Hibbert, our intercept reporter, what Fauci and Collins told them ahead of this proximal origins paper. And so this paper becomes critical to the entire conversation because this paper then becomes the thing that people point to to say, we don't need to talk about a lab leak origin. So Catherine, what is this proximal origins paper? Yeah. So it was uh, just to be clear. So this is not a paper that was peer reviewed. It was a letter. Right. It had five authors on it. Four of them were in this February confab. Which is uh, days earlier. Right. With Fauci and Farrar. And, you know, 
a number of them were basically saying uh, we cannot take the possibility of a lab leak off the table. That's what they were saying. But what they wrote in the proximal origin letter is that there is sort of no scenario by which we believe this could have had a lab origin. Once that gets into pre-publication, Fauci is at the White House and asked by a reporter at one of the White House COVID briefings, you know, could this have come from a lab? Dr. Fauci, could you address these suggestions or concerns that this virus was somehow man-made, possibly came out of a laboratory in China? He points to the proximal origin letter and says, well... There was a study uh, recently that we can make available to you where a, a group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists looked at the sequences there and the sequences in uh, bats as they evolve. And the mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now is totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. So, I mean, you know, that gets disseminated from the White House podium uh, with no reference to this February confab. Meanwhile, and this is something that my story uh, exposed for the first time, Bob Redfield, who was the director of the CDC, had these private communications with Fauci, Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust, and Tedros of the WHO and basically said, we have to take a lab leak possibility with utmost seriousness. We need to look into this. But he was completely excluded from these, um, from this private huddle and, uh, you know, and only found out later that it took place. So he believes, well, why was he excluded? Because the exercise was to come up with a single narrative that they could then, you know, communicate. And that strategy appears to have been quite effective if Redfield is right. Uh, they did come up with a single narrative and really took the possibility of a lab origin off the table publicly for many, many months. And so Peter Daszak also started to participate in this effort to organize scientists to push the media away from looking at the lab leak. Any one of the three of you want to take that Peter Daszak's role in this? So, um, so meanwhile, as that huddle is going on, uh, Dashik is organizing a letter in for the to be published in the Lancet, which basically says we scientists, you know, support our colleagues in China, and that is certainly commendable. But then it goes on to say, you know, anybody who is talking about the possibility of a lab origin is basically peddling conspiracy theories. What wasn't clear at the time that that came out in late February is that there were a whole cache of emails in which he and Ralph Barrick and others were saying we need to conceal our role in organizing this letter because it'll have much more power and authority if our role is concealed. And Jeremy Farrar was a co-signatory of that letter, you know, and a number of people who were on that letter, I think Christian Drosten, who was one of them, basically came out later and said, hey, if I had known all this research that was going on at the WIV, um, I wouldn't have signed that letter because I consider the research that was being done to be quite risky. And, you know, and I didn't really understand Dashik's role in all of this. 
so the, what we can now look back on and see clearly is that the Lancet letter and the Proximal Origins letter had a really chilling effect on the sort of candid discussion that was needed about where this virus originated. So Mara, can you, can you talk about you know, what unfolded from there? So I first wrote a, an article that, that got into the possibility of a lab leak in, I believe, May 2020. And at that point, things, things were so toxic um, that it really felt like we were out there alone on the topic, you know, with a few other publications um, like the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and so forth that were, that were covering it. But, you know, in the months that followed, things began to shift a bit. You know, you still had a lot of the mainstream media kind of rallying around Dasek's narrative and in his version of events and accepting that full scale. But there were at the same time um, scientists and biosafety advocates who felt like lab safety was not on the table in the way that it should be. And so in the spring of 2021, you've got these series of open letters by some very prominent um, scientists. Uh, one of them was actually published in Science, so you know, in the preeminent journal in the field. And those letters said that you know, essentially the possibility of a lab leak needed to be taken very seriously, um, that it had been preemptively dismissed. The WHO had come out with a report on the origins of the coronavirus that you know, relegated it to extremely unlikely. And you know, we now know that, that the, the WHO's investigation was extremely limited, that they were not given, given full access to labs and to other areas that they wanted to see. And, and so there, there, there came to be a bit of, um, not, not, not a backlash, but pushback um, from the scientific community. And so, Catherine, in your Vanity Fair article, you, you lead with this fascinating conference call between Francis Collins, uh, Anthony Fauci, and this scientist, uh, Dr. Jesse Bloom, who both Sharon Marr and you have all, all interviewed before. He's coming out with a, a paper, and he's, as a courtesy, sends it to Fauci and Collins. They invite him onto a call, and they tell him he can bring a second, which, which you say kind of portends like an ancient duel. And so he brings his second along and he's right. It, it does turn into a duel. So what, what, how, how does this conference call go down? Yeah. So, uh, Jesse Bloom was tracking some of the early, um, SARS-CoV-2 sequences from China. And he began sort of doing detective work and realizing that some of the sequences that were published in Chinese uh, journals seem to have disappeared from the NIH database of sequences, um, which struck him as odd. And he was basically able to figure out that the NIH deleted the sequences at the request of these Wuhan researchers. So he wrote, you know, a pretty unusual paper about that. And he sends the preprint before it appears publicly to Fauci and Collins, they immediately turn on a dime and organize this conference call, this Zoom call. Christian Anderson and Robert Gary come on. Uh, Collins invites them and asks Bloom, you know, who should we invite? Um, and so he, Rasmus Nielsen and Sergey Pond, 
two scientists get on the call and almost immediately it just devolves into this furious set of accusations with Anderson um, accusing Bloom of bringing scrutiny to this that will lead to more harassment of scientists. And then Anderson uh, proposes something that just stuns Bloom. She says, look, you know, the, the preprint is not public yet, so I can um, go in there and basically with no fingerprints, I can either revise it or delete it. And uh, Bloom is aghast and he says, you know, I don't think that that is appropriate given the circumstances. And, you know, Fauci and Collins reading the room are like, uh, yeah, that's maybe not a great idea. Let's, you know, doesn't one of them say for the record, um, I, I never asked you to this, which yeah, for, for the, the record, record you know, I mean, but, you know, one question here has become, you know, what what information is in those early sequences? Um, and those early sequences now are really critical because Partly they indicate or they they raise the issue of the timing of the origin of the start of this pandemic, which is critical. So there were these preprints that came out, uh, which basically claimed that there was dispositive proof of a market origin, that this came from some spillover event from an infected animal at uh, this uh wholesale seafood market where right, and can also can i just pause you there for one second yeah. just for with a comment if their job is to find viruses and stop them before they become a pandemic and let's say it did not come out of the lab it, this wasn't their, mm -hmm. their mistake that means that it came from a few miles away and they couldn't stop it right and a, and a virus could come anywhere in the world so their entire theory on what the benefit of their research is, is that they're going to identify these pathogens before they become pandemics. It was walking distance from their lab. And right. if it's true that it came from that wet market, they utterly failed to stop it. Right. So anyway, just wanted to just wanted to put, put that out there. It's not like it came Th that, That's absolutely true. You know, I mean, they've gone on to say that they need billions more for this critical prevention but I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask, well, what have these billions gotten us when they couldn't predict or prevent a pandemic which began, as you say, within walking distance of the laboratory? Before you go on, Catherine, let me just mm -hmm. add, point out here that it's not only the money that we may give them in the future, it's the money we are still giving. There is an active ongoing grant, which we have published, we obtained with our grant documents, which is describes essentially the same research that was in the first grant, right? Different partners, WIV is not a partner now, but UNC is a partner and it is ongoing. The work is ongoing and currently being funded. And I have written about this in the past, but I feel like it's kind of, a, it's not right. a detail. It's, kind of a big deal. it's like a big thing, right? This is still happening. Okay, sorry. Um, You know, so as I was saying, it, the this question of these early sequences and when the pandemic actually began is critical because the claim to a market origin really dissolves if in fact the pandemic began earlier, quite a bit perhaps earlier than uh, 
than what is presumed in those preprints alleging a market origin. So, you know, if in fact we are looking at a September 2019 beginning of this, or possibly even earlier, uh, it really changes the narrative because the question now that we're faced with is from this sort of battle of preprints is was the eruption of SARS-CoV-2 at the wholesale market, did it mark the origin of this virus or was it an amplifying event? You know, and that is where this sort of super spread that was visible began. And that sort of brings us back also to, you know, the public discussion, the media coverage issue, and maybe someone wants to talk about how those preprints were covered by the New York Times. I noticed in your article, Catherine, that you said that they got front page treatment. Did that mean that they were on the front page? I was actually trying to figure that out. They were. It was indeed on the front page. I believe that it was partly because they claimed to have dispositive evidence. Uh, But in fact, if you really drill down, even their next few sentences after that indicates it's not dispositive uh, evidence. But once the Times put it on the front page, it was picked up absolutely everywhere. And as some scientists have said to me, you know, that kind of language is not what you usually put in a scientific paper. So, so it, it sort of points to the question of whether, you know, how much, how much marketing there was in this scientific paper, uh, you know, the ratio of marketing to science. And also decisions about, you know, by the New York Times, of course, about, about placement and, you know, and production. And, and it really was, I got an alert on my phone, I think. It was, you know, it was Yes, very, I got the same. Right? And mm-hmm. it was like, suddenly, and I had people texting me saying, well, that story's dead. And it's like, you know, and I, I don't know if you experienced a similar thing. Oh, sure. You know, but but then the, pr- the problem is then you begin sort of digging into those preprints. And in order for what they're saying to be true, they have to have been working with a complete data set. You know, we have to be able to believe that the sequences that they examined from the market are in fact complete and that they are represent the earliest sequences. So the problem with all of this is that, yeah, that's what's visible. But, you know, at the same time, even the day before though they rushed those preprints into the public, the Chinese CDC came out with a study which basically said, we deem the market to be an amplifying event and that of all of the tests that we did, we picked up, you know, we picked up the virus in environmental samples, but not in any of the animals that we swapped. And yeah, Mara, can you talk about the Chinese government, the sequences? So the, in order to write this article, which to be clear, is, it's the headline is new research points to Wuhan market as pandemic origins, mm-hmm. February 27th of 2022. Like you said, they alerted it, they put it on the front page, they gave it their gigantic kind of graphic treatment with the the zooming in and the, you know, they're signaling to readers that they have spent enormous amounts of resources on this, on what is just a preprint, just a paper from scientists that has not been peer reviewed, hasn't been, you know, published yet. And like uh, Catherine says, it relies on only the sequences 
that are available. So, you know, Mara, what do we know about the ones that are, are not available? Well, I've been thinking about this issue a lot this past month or now six weeks um, with the lockdown in Shanghai. You know, I lived there for eight years. I have many friends who have been in their apartments for days and or month, you know, over a month in some cases. Um, and one of the things that's become abundantly clear that was clear before, but has been underscored um, in the events of the past month is that the the data put out by the Chinese government is just, you know, horribly incomplete. Um, you have situations where people people have said my relative died or, you know, I personally know someone who died and the deaths are not showing up um, in the death toll put out by the city. I mean, we knew that early in the pandemic. We knew that there were there were issues with the data, but it's it's abundantly clear now. And when you look at the early case data from Wuhan, you know, for a period, um, the Wuhan CDC was was only looking at cases that had a link to the Huanan uh, seafood market. So that, of course, biases them toward cases that, <laughs> that have a market connection. Um, you know, it, I, I feel like we're in this cycle, which has now gone on for over two years, uh, where you have competing media narratives and competing scientific narratives. And we kind of go back and forth from one to the other. I mean, there have been a lot of um, very honestly, not just shoddy scientific papers published, but also very speculative articles on both sides. And I just find it very unfortunate. Like, you know, we don't have an interest in pushing anything beyond the facts. And you know, ultimately, it's in everyone's um, it's in everyone's interest to get closer to figuring out the origin of the pandemic so that we can prevent the next one. And that's what's been so bizarre and concerning to me about this entire debate, because the question took on this partisan valence that it didn't have to. And that doesn't even make sense. Like, well, there's nothing inherent in being a Republican that re- that suggests that you should believe that it came from a lab. And there's nothing inherent about being a Democrat that says you want it to have come out of this seafood market. There's just no connection to that. If this was a question about taxes or support for childcare, okay, then there's a partisan balance that makes sense. But nothing here makes sense about this. And the question is so crucial because as Sharon, you talked about, this research is still being studied. So yeah. after having looked at this for several years, research is still being done. What What's your sense of the, of the cost and benefit of this type of gain, gain of function research, and where is the scientific community at at this point? Well, I mean, I think most scientists that have spoken really strive to make distinctions in the, the term. The term has gotten really problematic for a lot of people. I mean, if we're just talking about that, you you give a you know a virus more. Uh, you know, you alter it and give it different capabilities, potentially that could be okay, uh, you know, in a number of circumstances. I think what we're talking about really specifically here is with pathogens that have the potential to spark a pandemic. Now that is, you know, in 2014, that was a sort of academic notion. Right now, it's not, right? We're approaching a million deaths in the United States, you know, and 
you know, as you said, uh, this, and as I've said, this research is ongoing, and which is why it's been so, yes, heartbreaking to see it kind of break down in this really weird partisan way. And I feel like I've, I also find it pretty mysterious. And one of the things that seems to be driving it on the right is this, uh, the, this sort of through line of, of very strong negative feelings about Tony Fauci, who, I mean, is, you know, has served in all these different administrations, Republican, Democrat, and yet on the right, they seem to be really motivated by this interest in, you know, ousting him. And and I, I find that to be really interesting and puzzling. And also on, and on the Democratic side, you see this, you know, continued resistance to engaging in any real way with this question and doing a thorough investigation that would unearth some of the facts that we know are, you know, could be gotten, right? So obtained. We have all this information in the U.S., both within the government and in academic institutions that has not been mined yet, right? More than two years after this, we know we've talked a lot about UNC and Ralph Barrick's lab. We've talked about, I mean, they they got, uh, they did not get the, you know, the DARPA funding. They have gotten a lot of funding. I'm talking about EcoHealth here from uh, DITRA, another branch of DOD, from USAID, from, you know, and again, from NIH. We, there there's a lot of unmined evidence that I think, you know, left and right should be we should think be thinking about how to solve this problem both because we've seen it devastate our country and the entire world and because yes we're still doing this research let me also add ryan that the you know you talked about this sort of partisan valence and i feel that beneath this is this question about the support and defense of science and that because republicans have uh, been associated with sort of anti-science positions, um, the Democrats feel that they have, and many scientists feel that they have to defend science. And while I totally uh, understand that impulse, um, as as, uh, Dr. Redfield put it to me, you know, he's a virologist, that's a fundamentally anti-scientific position, which is to kind of close your mind to other possibilities, right? I mean, the ultimate scientific inquiry is just like the ultimate journalistic inquiry is to go wherever the facts lead, which I think everybody on this podcast is inclined to do. Another part of this, I think, is that when you look, we're talking about all these players who are kind of fending off inquiry into this question. And almost all of these scientists rely on NIH for their livelihoods, right? And it becomes very difficult to, you know, to buck the, the you know, to point the finger at your boss, essentially, right? right? You know, and even if you're, you know, not saying you did it, you're saying, let's let's take a good look at the potential culpability. It's a very 
difficult question to ask. And we don't think about that. People don't generally think about that when they think about scientists, you know, it, that that there's a, a an important funding source and that the NIH, not just in the United States, but around the world, is really powerful as a funder, as a funder. Of right. And Collins and Fauci were being extremely clear in early February about what they felt about the value of exploring the lab leak, that that even the exploration, you know, would just fan the flames of uh, conspiracy theorists. And Mara, with your knowledge of, of China and Chinese labs as, as well, as, as you've looked at this over the last couple of years, has your thinking on this research evolved? Well, I was aware of the, I, you know, so I had covered the controversy over gain of function research before the pandemic. I, I knew that there were politics surrounding this issue that had nothing to do with partisan politics, you know, had nothing to do with US-China relations. And, you know, there were these pre-existing tensions. Um, I, I'd actually visited a BSL-4 lab in China at one point to write about controversial flu research. Which means like the most secure. Yeah, not, yeah. So right. this was not the Wuhan Institute. Uh, it was a, a different lab in Harbin. Which is also wild to think about that Wuhan I think, Catherine, you described it as a kind of JV lab, like a safety school of Chinese labs. So not only are we funding this extremely dangerous research, but it's basically in a strip mall. I mean, so this is an issue that's very emotional for many people, very emotional for scientists, as we've discussed. Um, and so you've had people ask me, well, why does it even matter that we know where the pandemic came from? And one obvious answer is that you know, we need to know where it came from so that we can prevent the next pandemic. Um, you know, already China and other countries are building more biolabs in the wake of the pandemic. Um, so the reaction to the pandemic has been, you know, let's build more labs. Um, let's do more uh, work with viruses so that we can we can catch dangerous viruses before they emerge. And obviously, if if that research caused the pandemic, then we need to be very careful about the the safety in those labs. Even if there's just a chance that that research caused the pandemic, and we don't know, but we know, you know, we know it could have caused it, we need to be careful about the biosafety practices. Um, and it's not just China. Um, the, the, you know, the U.S. has a, has a proliferation of um, biolabs around the country, you know, some of them in areas that are vulnerable to, to climate change and to natural disasters, um, to, you know, to safety issues. Or wars, apparently. Right, yeah, to safety issues we, that, we have, some in that have, um, you know, nothing to do with, with just scientists making mistakes. And so these are, these are issues that we need to continue to, to, to think about um, because the science is moving forward and this is about our future. Yeah, well, I, I was going to talk about the NSABB, but just keep going with now, like, no, go ahead. Well, when you look at the discussion that's now happening with this group, the NSABB, which is a, a, a group of scientists appointed by NIH to to renew this look at the safety of, of potential pandemic pathogen research. And even with this real possibility now that that this current pandemic could have been set off by by lab work, you still see this really vigorous defense of the whole line of research and this argument that like we're going to lose our place in the sort of international kind of science competition to get to the 
to to the front, you know, to the most groundbreaking research and and that we're going to, you know, hobble our ability to fight pandemics and prevent pandemics. So it's the same argument that has justified this kind of dangerous work to begin with. And it doesn't seem that, you know, judging from the ongoing discussions of this and its ABB, that it's even this real possibility has moved the dial much in terms of the public discussion. Still, you have a real kind of um, a strong defense of all of this kinds of research. And it, I mean, it hasn't been decided yet what's going to, there are more meetings planned, but I, having listened to some of the first batch of meetings, I'm not uh, confident that they're going to do anything more than happened in 2014 and 2017 to protect us. And the way I think about it is that in order for us to remain, you know, future pandemic free, we would have to be lucky in every single lab, every single day, forever. The virus only has to get lucky once. And I have not been feeling very lucky lately, uh, but maybe we'll all get nuked first and say, save us all from that. Uh, Catherine, Sharon, Mara, uh, thank you so much for joining me. This has been terrific. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. This is great. That was Catherine Eben, Mara Fissendahl, and Sharon Lerner. And that's almost the end of our show. But first, a few quick but important notes. Now first, a double thank you to Sharon. So speaking of COVID and its origins, I have COVID right now. And you may have noticed that for last week's episode, which was an interview with Sharon and human rights attorney Stephen Donziger, Sharon did the introduction for the show. Now that's because after we recorded the interview, I completely crashed and she graciously stepped in to finish it. I'm feeling much better. And now she's back a second week in a row. So thank you again to Sharon. And a couple of notes on EcoHealth Alliance and their response to this reporting. For Peter Daszak's full perspective on all this, you should check out their in-depth interview with him, which we'll link to in the show notes. Specifically, though, as it relates to the allegation that EcoHealth did not comply with its NIH reporting requirements, EcoHealth disputes this and has written in a letter to the NIH, which the Wall Street Journal has written about, that it, quote, did in fact comply with all reporting requirements, unquote. On the discrepancy between their claim that they had not conducted research on the deadly MERS virus and the FOIA documents showing that they had conducted that research, Dazak has said that the spokesperson who made that claim was misinformed. On behalf of Jeremy Farrar, the director of the UK's Wellcome Trust, a spokesperson told Vanity Fair, quote, Dr. Farrar is in regular conversation with and regularly convenes many other expert scientists, unquote. He added about the February call in emails, quote, Dr. Farrar's view is that there was at no stage any political influence or interference during these conversations or in the research carried out, unquote. Virologist Robert Gary, who was on the call Farrar organized with a group of 11 scientists, told Benny Fair, quote, it's frankly tiresome to explain for the umpteenth time that that was one email cherry-picked among dozens, even hundreds, in part of an ongoing scientific discussion, unquote. As I mentioned during the show, Dr. Gary also told us in an email, quote, neither doctors Fauci or Collins edited our proximal origin paper in any way. The major feedback we got from the February 1st teleconference was, one, don't try to write a paper at all. It's unnecessary. Or two, if you do write it, don't mention a lab origin as that will just add fuel to the conspiracists. Now, evolutionary biologist Christian Anderson and Gary, who were on the call with Jesse Bloom, that was the call with Jesse Bloom, Collins, and Fauci that Catherine even wrote about, both deny anyone on the call suggested deleting or amending the paper. 
Now, for her story, Catherine even spoke to Sergei Pond, who was also in the meeting, and Sergei confirmed evolutionary biologist Jesse Bloom's account. There's also the call with Jesse Bloom, Collins, and Fauci. So evolutionary biologists Christian Anderson and Gary, who were on that call, both deny anyone on the call suggested deleting or amending the paper. Now, for her story, Catherine spoke to Sergey Pond, who was also in the meeting, and Sergey confirmed what Bloom had said. And that is our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs>